check, but he really does have a chocolate chip cookie over there. <laughs> Let's open with a word of prayer. <clears throat> Thank you, Father, for your grace and your mercy to us. Thank you that we are the recipients of such love that you burned in wrath against your son so that there would be nothing left in the wake of that fire except your abundant love for us. And as we contemplate this Advent season, remind us that this is not about marking another birthday for the baby Jesus. This is about remembering the great cost to you um, to redeem us, to save us, to make us your sons and your daughters. Father, help us to listen today and to understand. Help us to incorporate what we hear. We invite you by your spirit to give us listening and willing hearts and then to change us. Lord Jesus, send your Holy Spirit into the speaker and the hearer that we will meet with you today. And Holy Spirit, please have complete control of our lives today as we bring glory to the Father through Jesus, his Son. We pray this in his name. Amen. My uh, granddaughter is in junior high right now. She's doing her school online. And every once in a while, she'll call me. I think, she, I think I'm helping her with her finals. But she'll call me um, with help for her questions. And they're usually on the subject of science. Now, recently, she called me to ask me about some chemistry questions. And it made my brain feel fluffy. I mean, I started thinking about it. You know, it's been somewhere between 50 and 55 years since I did junior high science. A lot's changed. Yeah. It's not a lot's changed in science, but a lot's changed in the gray matter in between my ears at any rate. So I, I enjoyed junior high science, especially because I had a really great science chemistry teacher. It was Mr. Pratt. Mr. Pratt, remember I went to school in the end of the 60s, so Mr. Pratt always wore a white dress shirt, short sleeve, with one of those skinny 1960 black ties that went with it. But the thing I liked about Mr. Pratt's science classes, the science experiments that he did, because they were awesome experiments. This one experiment that he set up was mixing sodium metal with chlorine gas. Yeah, so the particular uh, thing is you take sodium. Sodium is a, a silver-colored metal that oxidizes quickly so that when you get it, it comes uh, in uh, oil, uh, mineral oil. By the way, you can buy it on Amazon. One gram costs $11, so you can, you can do this experiment. <laughs> so you take the sodium metal. It's soft enough that you can cut it with a knife. It's highly reactive. If you put sodium metal on water, it explodes. It makes hydrogen gas and sodium chloride and I forget what else it makes, but anyway, you can, it, it's explosive when, when it's uh, combined with, with water. Um, chlorine is a very poisonous green-yellow gas. Remember, they used this during World War I in the trench warfare. Now, you can make chlorine at home, boys yeah. and girls. <laughs> and I'm going to tell you how, because this, this is an awesome science experiment. You get chlorine pool pellets, right? So you put these chlorine pool pellets in a container, and you, and you put in um, muriatic acid, which is also the same kind of acid that your stomach has in it. Um, 
uh, hydrochloric acid. Hydrochloric acid and muriatic acid are the same thing. So you add that to the pool pellets and you're making chlorine gas. This, it's this, like I said, it's this green-yellow gas. Now you put the sodium metal, and there's two ways to do the experiment from here. You can either put the sodium in to water and, and it will produce this product, or the better way to do it, the way Mr. Pratt did it in my fifth grade, or my, must have been seventh grade, junior high class, so anyway, you heat the sodium metal up on a, a spoon until it's red hot, because your product is gonna be pure. Now what happens when you mix the sodium metal with the chlorine gas is it produces a lot of heat. It's highly reactive and you get this very bright yellow light. So this is the experiment you wanna carry out. And it's extremely exothermic, it's very hot, it will burn, if you don't have a Pyrex bowl, it will burn through your beaker that you're making it in. And when all of the excitement is gone, what you're left with is this white crusty powder. Um, it's very clean if you do the heat method, it's very dirty if you use the water method with the sodium. But what you end up with is common table salt, and you could eat that. It's you taking these two deadly sub substances and you, they have this violent, vigorous reaction, and what you end up with is something that is stable, uh, healthy, necessary for life. Um, you have something that's a, a violent, deadly, reactive substance, and you mix it with another, and you end up with something that, that is good. That's exactly what's happening in our text today, believe it or not. In the book of Esther, you have two violent, highly reactive, dangerous, lethal elements that are combined, and when they are combined, there is a highly reactive uh, response, but ultimately it produces something good. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Esther chapter 8, verse 1. Esther 8, 1. Now, you remember that uh, last week we dispensed with Haman. Haman has had his much-deserved downfall, and that's... Uh, reason for celebration. He's gotten his just desserts. He's, he had tried to hang Mordecai on this 75-foot tall pole. Instead, he himself gets hung on this. He wanted to be exalted. He gets exalted highly on a stick. So Haman is uh, out of the picture now, uh, but the crisis that Haman created is far from over. Haman's dead, but his edict lives on. And you remember his edict says that now in about 10 months, um, anyone who wants to kill a Jew is encouraged to do so. In fact, they're, they're uh, directed, go find a Jew and kill him, and then take whatever he has for yourself. So the, the, the problem lives on, even though Haman, the start of the problem, is, is now dead. That, and so this is the biggest problem that Esther now faces. So her, her, her enemy, Haman, is out of the picture, but this edict is still living on. And what makes it doubly difficult is if you remember, any law that goes into effect using the king's signet ring is one of these things called the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. So there's nothing that can be done to reverse this irrevocable, irreversible law, and that's the problem that, that uh, Esther finds herself in, that in 10 months, on the 13th of Adair, people are going to be encouraged to find a Jew and kill, annihilate, exterminate them, women and children, and, and then to uh, 
to uh, take their possessions away. And not only may they, they should go out and do this. So that's the problem that's, faced, that's facing us in uh, Esther chapter 8, verse 1. And then let's begin there. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agite, Agagite and uh, the plot he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, now notice this because we're going to spend a lot of time here in verse 5, Esther rose and stood before the king, and she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and if I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadath, I'm not going to live here anymore, Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who were in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that's coming on my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring, for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. So let's back up a little bit. Now, Haman has been convicted of treason, and because he's a traitor, all of his property then reverts to the state. So if he, being a rich man, his property would have certainly included his house, his servants, his wealth, his land, even his family. His family becomes property of the state because of his a conviction of treason. Uh, Haman's estate then is uh, given by the king to Esther. Now presumably, and I'm reading into the text, I realize that, presumably King Ahasuerus uh, gives Esther Haman's property because she's the victim and he was the victimizer. So he's, um, he's uh, trying to match justice with that. So he, he, he gives to Esther all of his Haman's estate. And then Mordecai comes into the king's presence because Mordecai had asked Esther to keep her relationship with him a secret. Now it's no longer a secret. Um, the king already knows that Mordecai is the one who had averted an assassination attempt on him, and now he finds out he's the queen's uncle, cousin, something. And so he, he favors Mordecai. He gives Mordecai the same position that Haman once held, the grand vizier, uh, the head of state. He's second in, in the whole uh, nation. And Mordecai is given this, this uh, place that Haman once had. How interesting that what Haman wanted is given to Mordecai, and what Haman wanted for Mordecai is given to Haman. There's a grand reversal taking place here. And then now, once again, Esther pleads with the king. She falls at his feet. She weeps before him. He begs, she begs him to avert this evil plan that uh, Haman has set up against the, the Jews. Uh, even now, even though 
Esther has, has gained favor with the king, has gained this upper hand, you still see her displaying these superior rhetorical skills. She, she begins um, piling up these deferential clauses. So you go back to verse 5. Um, she's, there's the first of the, the clauses. She's, she's alternating between um, abstract reason and personal reason. So in the first and the third clause, she's emphasizing the condition that um, the king would find favor in her. And in the second and the fourth clause, she's asking that he would find favor in her reason or her, her um, objective, the thing she's... So she's alternating back and forth, and she's braiding together the king's favor towards her, which at the moment is clearly very high, and the king's favor towards her as yet unnamed request. And only then does she, she tell the king what her request is, and the request is she's asking that the king would revoke the previous edict that was given by Haman. So when she makes this request, notice that she's very shrewd about it. She, she mentions the fact that he, she wants the king to revoke Haman's edict. She's very careful not to uh, imply that the king has anything to do with this, though he does. Whether he knows it or not, it was his signet ring that put all this into effect. So she's, she very carefully avoids uh, insinuating that the king had anything to do with it. She's very careful to... Uh, say this is, this is all Haman's doing. But the problem, like I said earlier, the problem is what she's asking is that the king would revoke an irrevocable law. And it, it can't be done. And the king basically says, you know, I'd love to help you, but there's really nothing I can do about it. You know, I understand your plight. I wish there was something I could do, but you have to understand my hands are tied. There's really nothing I can do um, to help you. What I can do, however, is I can give you and your uncle Mordecai, the, the signet ring that Haman had, and I can let you come up with a solution that will counteract Haman's uh, decree, or at least even the playing field. Verse 9. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to the satraps, the governors, the officials, the province from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script, to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses, that were used in the service of the king, bred from the royal stud. Now, here's where we're going to spend some more time on this. Verse 11, saying that the king allowed the Jews, who were in every city, to gather and defend themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, including children and women, and to plunder their goods on one day throughout all the provinces of King Mohasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adair. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all the people, and the Jews were ready to, to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers, mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's services, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. 
The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city where the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, feast and holiday, and there were many from the peoples of the country that declared themselves Jews, for the fear of the Jews had fallen on them. So Esther and Mordecai do exactly what Haman has done. And when I mean exactly, I want to spend some time noting the parallels between Haman's decree and uh, Mordecai's decree. First, he calls for the secretaries to come write this edict out so that the language would go out to the, all of the, the world. And although they can't overturn Haman's uh, edict, they can at least try to... Uh, level things out to give the Jews an, an advantage. And so the edict is written that the Jews can assemble on, coincidentally, this great same day, the 13th of Adair, and they are able to defect, defend themselves. And what might they do? Verse 11, they can destroy, kill, and annihilate anyone who comes to attack them, including women and children. And once they've done that, they are, um, they're uh, given permission to plunder the, their enemies at the same time. So you, you see what's happening here is there's this mimicking of Haman's edict, uh, almost word for word. Leave your finger here, but turn back to the original edict, uh, chapter, thir chapter 3, verse 13. Just let's look at the parallels between this edict in 811 and the original edict from Haman in chapter 3, verse 13. Uh, chapter 3, 13 Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, to annihilate the Jews, young and old, men and women, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adair, and to plunder their goods. So comparing them, 313 and 811, um, what, is, what is the edict giving? To destroy, kill, and annihilate. That's 313. What is it in 811? To destroy, kill, and annihilate. And then... Who can they destroy, kill, and annihilate? In 3.13, it's all Jews. In 8.11, it's all the, who's attacking the Jews. Um, 3.13, this includes women and children. 8.11, this includes women and children. 3.13, um, they are then given permission to plunder their enemies' goods. 8.11, permission to plunder their enemies' goods. So there's a parallelism. It's meant to be obvious. It's meant that when you hear this new edict, you will see that it's exactly like the first edict, only with a slight difference. In the Mordecai's, in Haman's edict, the people are given permission to find a Jew and encouraged to destroy him. So you look at that 313 one, they are instructed to go out and find a Jew and, and annihilate, kill, destroy them. In the 811, the Jews are given permission to defend themselves. Um, Mordecai's edict is meant to counteract Haman's edict. It's meant to neutralize the effect of this first edict of death. And even so, uh, again, it's, the Jews are given pretty much the exact description as the enemies of the Jews. But what we'll find is the Jews did not kill women and children. And there are several uh, instances of that, including the fact that when the king says that there were 500 men killed in Susa. There's no mention of women and children. And three times in the text, we haven't got to all three, they're told that the Jews, even though they had permission to plunder, did not do so. So they're not really expected to kill women and children and take their plunder. They are expected to see the parallelism between the two edicts. So 
That brings us to chapter 9. Um, chapter 9, verse 1. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adair, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on that very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials and the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the, in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. The man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, also Parshandatha, Dalphon, Aspatha, and Poratha, Adalia, Eridatha, Parmashta, Arasi, Aradi, Vaizatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. All right, so the 13th day of Adair arrives, and the Jews are uh, gathered to defend themselves, and there is a great reversal that takes place here. The Jews gather in the city and the provinces, and they are defending themselves against anyone who comes to attack them. Curious, though, and I tried to emphasize this while we we're reading it, the, the government officials are somehow helping the Jews. I don't think they're actually involved in the battle but they're providing arms, weapons to them, much like what we're doing in Ukraine right now. We're not physically there, but we're helping them. So I think what happened here is that the, the nobles, the satraps, the governors, the administrators are helping the Jews by providing them with weapons. And they do that because in the 10 months between the issuing of this edict and the time that this battle actually happens, Mordecai, we are told, has been growing more and more in strength and in favor, and, 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 they, and there's fear on their part of crossing Mordecai. And at the end of the first day, then, um, the Jews have found overwhelming success. They've killed 500 men in the citadel at Susa, as well as the ten sons of Haman. By the way, we should not think that the ten sons of Haman that get killed in this foray are like Tiny Tim of Dickens' Christmas Carol. They're not just innocent little boys. We should think more like Saddam Hussein's innocent little boys, uh, Uday and Kuse. You remember these two guys? So these guys, in the 10 months between, have been working to resist uh, Mordecai. So the, and the reason for having these 10 sons killed, this is not a, a vengeance killing or an unnecessary murder. In the, the ancient world, you would kill the sons of the person that you had assassinated or whatever because of the uh, attempts that the son would have to do to make things even for a blood, avenge, a blood revenge killing. And so they would kill the sons, one, to make sure there's no blood avenging, and two, to uh, completely annihilate that person's uh, heritage. So with the death of these ten sons, 
Haman's fall is now complete, and that's the reason for it being recorded here, that Haman's fall is now complete. At any rate, God's people are defending themselves against those who attack them. They're not out launching preventative uh, attacks. They're, they did not initiate this, this action by raiding the homes of their foes. Rather, they're following Mordecai's carefully prescribed decree by offering a very vigorous defense. And though the Jews had the right to annihilate anyone, regardless of gender or age, there's no record in the text here that says that any women and children were, in fact, killed. And then again, like I said earlier, three times in Esther 9, um, the Jews have the opportunity to plunder the good of those who have attacked them, but they don't do it. And the reason for this is the Jews' defense is meant to be preservative, not for their economic advancement. It's meant to... Uh, it's meant to uh, focus on the punishment of those who are coming against the Jews, not to plunder them. Verse 11, chapter 9, verse 11. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king, and the king went to Queen Esther. In Susa, the city, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. What further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this edict, and let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. The decree was issued in Susa. The ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now, Esther's not requesting a second day of uh, vengeance throughout the whole empire. She's only requesting this in the citadel, in the capital city of Susa. She's not requesting, in other words, that there would be open season to kill all the people who don't like Jews everywhere in the world. She's just saying... There are pockets of resistance that were not rooted out in one day. And she's asking for permission then to uh, uh, allow this resistance force a second day of, of conflict, which the king grants. Now, again, I, I mentioned that uh, the ten sons of Haman are living there in the capital of Susa for these last ten months. And presumably they are building a resistance against Haman and their execution there completes that victory, and it's providing the, the final neutralization of the forces that are against the Jews. And they're, they're trying to make it uh, uh, an emphatic point about it. Remember, the, the ten sons have been killed yesterday on the 13th of Adair. Esther asked that their bodies would be hung up on the gallows the next day. They're already dead. They're not being executed. They're already dead, but they're being hung up because they're showing everyone that there's a completion to what has transpired here. Uh, everything that Haman had boasted for, remember back in chapter 5 when Haman is mad at Mordecai and he goes home to sulk and he tells his wife and his friends about what a great guy he is? Remember this story? And he tells them about all the great things he has. He has great wealth. He has great honor and, and great position in the king's favor, and he has ten sons that he's particularly proud of, of his family heritage. 
All of these things have now been taken away from him. His, his great wealth has been taken away from him, given to Esther. Mordecai has been given charge of what was Haman's estate. His great position, number two in the, in the kingdom, has been taken away from him, given to his arch enemy, Mordecai. His ten sons that he's particularly proud of and bragging about have all been wiped out. He's got nothing left. So the point of all of that is all the things that Haman was proud of are now lost to him. It occurs to me as we're going through this book of Esther that there is a remarkable parallel between the situation that the Jews in Persia had and our situation today. In fact, I find the parallel to be a very frightening parallel. They were under an edict of death that had been issued by the king, under the king's authority. We are under an edict of death which has been issued by the king of kings, the king of the universe. This edict of death that the king of Persia gave was an irrevocable edict of death. And we, too, are under an irrevocable edict of death. Since sin came into the world through Adam and Eve, and they aligned themselves against God, because of their separation from God, he pronounces an irrevocable decree of death against them and all of their descendants. The nature of sin is opposition against God. And we were born with this nature of opposition against God. But further than that, we have, we have uh, implicated ourselves. What's the word I'm looking for? We are guilty not only because we were born as sinners, we have sinned. We have continued this rebellion against God. We have uh, opposed him, and, and we find ourselves to be sinners deserving of the decree that we inherited. And it's because of sin, and it is because of our sins, that we have become subject to this irrevocable decree of death. It stands against us. Now, God could have justly, at the time that Adam sinned and rebelled against him, he could have justly wiped man out. He could have chosen to annihilate us and start all over again. He could still choose to do that to the sinner, to you. Curiously, though, though we are under an irrevocable decree of death, it can't be changed, it can't be erased. God can't say, you know what, I changed my mind. But like in the Jews' case of Persia, God issues an edict of life that balances this out. He, he gives this counter decree to, to redeem people. Now, in Esther, this, this, this irrevocable decree of death issues forth from the king. And in our case, this irrevocable decree of death issues forth from the king. This counter decree also comes forth from the king. Because just like in the situation with Esther, the king could not simply say, I erase the, irre I, this, I erase the irrevocable, unchangeable decree of death. He can't do that. He's unable to. 
but instead a counter decree of life is given. Just like the king of the universe can't just say, ah, never mind, it's okay, boys will be boys, sinners will be sinners, you forget about it, we'll be all right. Because it's just that serious. And so he must issue a counter decree of life, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because God can't simply rescind the curse of death on humanity, he issues a counter decree of redemption. That necessarily involves the incarnation of his son. Now we come to the Christmas story. What are we talking about at the Christmas story? It is not that the sweet little eight-pound baby Jesus is now 2,023 years old today. It is not, hey, isn't it a great thing that, that the shepherds in Bethlehem were watching their flocks by night and got to go see the sweet baby Jesus. The issue here is that we are under an irrevocable decree of death, and the only way to issue the counter-decree is if the destruction of death is met on somebody else, somebody adequate to pay for our sins. The Christmas story is about Esther. It's about this irrevocable decree of death that's been upon us, and God issues this counter-decree of life only because his wrath has been poured out already on his son. He doesn't say, never mind, I changed my mind. It's all okay. It's not okay. The deepest significance of the birth of Bethlehem and Christ on the cross is that we are actually saved from something which is very real and very terrible. And the wrath of God is then directed against sin and evil. There was a second century heretic by the name of Marcion. And Marcion said that the God and Father of Jesus Christ is such a loving and caring God that he couldn't possibly be the same God of the Old Testament. We must be talking about two different people. And you've heard people say that today, too. They say, how can the God who loves us so much that he would send his son to die on the cross, how can this be the same God of, of wrath and judgment of the Old Testament? It, it is the same God. Nothing's changed. We're just looking at two facets, two aspects of the same thing. The same thing. I don't mean the same God, the same person. I'm, I'm talking about the same thing. God's wrath against his own people. We see this over and over again. God judges his people because his covenant people, his chosen race, his elect nation, when they denigrate to their morality and spirituality to be as, as destitute as those around them, God always sent judgment. He didn't just say, I will bless you and prosper you and everything you do I'll approve. He says, when you follow me, I will bless you and judge you, or, or I will bless you and prosper you. When you don't follow me, there will be judgment. And what do you see in the history of the Old Testament? They run away from God, and God sends judgment, not prosperity. Lamentations is a record of Israel's beginning to understand God's wrath, which is the same part of his love. Lamentations chapter 2, verse 5. The Lord is like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. 
He has swallowed up all her palaces and destroyed her strongholds. He has multiplied mourning and lamentation for the daughter of Judah. He has laid waste his dwelling like a garden. He has destroyed his place of meeting. The Lord has made Zion forget her appointed feast and her Sabbath. In his fierce anger, he has spurned both king and priest. Here I speak to many people today about what's going on in Israel, and they say, well, we have to support God's people. We have to, to, to bless them. We have to endorse everything that they want to do because they're the Jews, they're God's people. God doesn't do that. God judges any nation, any people who defy him, Jew or Christian. He ruthlessly corrects those whom he royally elects. There are multiplied blessings of obedience. There are multiplied burdens of disobedience. The destruction of God's chosen people clearly demonstrates God's violence directed against sin. He does not wink at it. He does not just give you a pass. He does not show favoritism to any people regardless of nationality. And yet, in his wrath against Israel's sin, he does not utterly destroy them because it is through Israel that God meant to have a plan to redeem fallen humanity from destruction. God's irrevocable decree of death and destruction has been countered by his decree of life that all who believe in his son would not suffer his wrath and judgment, but to be delivered into eternal life. The violence of God against sin is therefore rightly understood only when we come to the shadow of the cross. Verse 16. Now the rest of the Jews who were in, in the king's provinces also gathered to defend themselves. They got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adair. And the 14th day they rested and made that day a day of feasting and gladness. Uh, verse 20. Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews and to all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adair and also the 15th day of the same, year by year, as the days of which Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness Days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Uh, verse 26, therefore they called these days Purim after the term poor. Going back to our first lesson in Esther, remember Haman cast dice. He cast the lots. The dice, just like our dice, they were called Purim. And it was using this Purim that determined the win and the method of annihilating the Jews. And yet... On the 14th of Adair, there is this great reversal. And the Jews to this day celebrate Purim, the great reversal. This, the next Purim is March 23rd, 2024. Um, the, the, the book of Esther is read on every Purim to remind the Jews of the great reversal, the great uh, leveling edict. So we're going to end our study of Esther here. We'll break for Christmas. 
And then uh, after the new year, we'll, we'll come back. We're going to begin First and Second Thessalonians, if you want to pick up study material for that. Today, as in the day of Esther, there remains for us an edict of death and a counter-edict of life. You have two very powerful, highly reactive, very dangerous forces like sodium and chlorine. You've already fallen under the edict of death. Every one of us has. But the question before us is, have we received the counter-edict of life? Let's pray. Our Father God, we want to thank you again for your word to us through the book of Esther and pray that we are not light in thinking about the great cost to you to burn in your wrath against your son in whom you knew no, nothing wrong because of your great love for us. And as we celebrate this Christmas season, remind us that it's not about a baby in a manger. It's about God who's wrapped in flesh, who has come to satisfy you for the sins that we are guilty of. Lord, I pray that you would cause us to ruminate on your word and to be changed by it. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> 